The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Oh, visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance." We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. When they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them? Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. They angered him also at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance and he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles and those who hated them ruled over them. 
Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. When he heard their cry and for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all who carried them away captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, that covered part of our sermon today, or actually our sermon is covered in part of that psalm today, which is Numbers chapter 13, it's verses 1 through 25, and this is entitled, A Taste of the Land of Promise, Part 1. Verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were the names from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel the son of Sodi, from the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel the son of Gamali, from the tribe of Asher, Sether the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi the son of Vofsi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel the son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Joshua. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamat. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. Then they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. In today's verses, there's a surprising lack of detail about the time that the men spent in the land of Canaan checking things out. Their travels took them a long way through a lot of different areas and climates, and yet almost all of the focus is centered on four verses, which are in one part of the land. The verses coming up in a week will give a little bit more detail, but it is after-the-fact detail. If one were to make exacting records as Moses asked for, you might think that they would have made several books of notes, and yet we get less than a paragraph of that here. It really should make one wonder. And yet, at the same time, it is obviously exactly what the Lord wanted us to read. 
there's nothing superfluous added in, and all the other details of travels and other adventures must in fact be superfluous. And so we will look through the details today as they have been provided. Wherever the Lord is leading us, that is where we need to go. As I typed this introduction, the truth is I had no idea where the narrative was going. It was 4 p.m. on November 5th, and I had evaluated all 25 of the verses of today's text, and I had no idea at all what they were trying to say. That kind of a dilemma means there will either be a nice life application at the end of the chapter next week, or the Lord will have eventually revealed it so that I could compose a final explanation of what is given here, as is recorded, of how it all points to Christ. I didn't know what the outcome would be, but by the time I present these two sermons, we'll know which way it went. Such afternoons are very frustrating. Now, I'll tell you this. I typed this. As I said, I had no idea what was going on. And at the end of it, I realized this was a very, very complicated chapter in the Bible. I knew it would take two sermons to get through it as well. And so I did something I normally don't do. I normally will pray about my sermon typing. On Monday, I'm taking out the garbage at the mall. I'm picking things up, and I've got time to just talk to the Lord. There's nothing else going on. And so I will pray to the Lord. And I always say the same thing to him. I say, Lord, prepare my fingers for the battle. And because it's like a battle to me, I started at four o'clock, I take an hour to clean them all, and then I come back home and I work until it's done, whether it's four o'clock or seven o'clock. But I actually went out and I said to several of my friends, please pray that I get insights into this because it's a very complicated passage and I know the Lord is trying to tell us something. And as I said, I had no idea at the end of typing this sermon if I would understand what pictures of Christ were being revealed at the end of next week's sermon. But I want to thank somebody in particular who is Mary, who lives down in Naples, and she's come up here many times to worship with us. She's over in Israel right now. But, yeah, she's there for a while doing some things. But uh, she, as soon as I said, I'm just not sure what is being presented in here, she sent me every commentary on this planet for Numbers chapter 13. And most of them were exactly as you would see commentaries. They're commentaries from scholars, and they give you an idea. But they do not give you what the intent, the pictorial application is. Nobody deals with those type of things. And normally if they do, they just make something up. They just, oh, well, this means this, and that's pointing to Christ in this way. And it's usually something that has nothing to do with it. You have to go back to the Hebrew, and you have to read the Hebrew in order to understand what the Lord is trying to tell us. And that's where we're at with this today. All right. Our text verse comes from Proverbs chapter 30. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. If nothing else, the Bible makes it abundantly clear, both in this verse and elsewhere, that every word of Scripture is important. The Lord has set a plan which is compiled into a small, organized, and highly detailed book. Despite it being small, it is larger than any man's brain can fully grasp. Despite being organized, even highly so, it is still extremely difficult to be able to understand the organization in any reasonable manner. And being highly detailed, we still tend to want to go beyond the detail in order to make it flow more smoothly, make more sense, or make us not feel so incompetent at not being able to deal with the detail that we do have. The real rewards, however, are to be able to grasp what is being said within the confines of the book itself. Yes, we can use thoughts and ideas from outside of this marvelous treasure if and only if they line up with what the Word says. But we need to be 
careful to never try to read into the Bible what we want it to say. Instead, we need to draw out from it what the intended meaning is. That is where the real effort comes in. Lord, what are you telling us? This is where the treasure is found, and this is what makes searching out Scripture so absolutely enjoyable. It is a puzzle filled with puzzles. Each one helps explain and reveal the next one a bit more, and we'll see this as it goes on. For now, let's get into these verses to see what they say, at least on the surface. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got three separate thoughts for you. The first one is chosen to go. It's verses 1 through 16. Geographically, we are now beginning the third major section of the book of Numbers with this chapter. The first section was what we would call a wilderness section, where the people were located at the foot of Mount Sinai. That went from verse 1-1 to verse 10-10. The next section was a road trip between Sinai and Paran, which went from 10-11 until 12-16, which was our sermon last week. The people have now arrived in Paran, and this section will last from 13-1 until 19-22. With this understanding, we now begin the narrative. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The words are to be taken in the light of Deuteronomy 1, verses 19 through 22. If we don't go there, you're not going to understand what is happening in this chapter right now. Here's what it says there. So we departed from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, by the way, it's the same mountain, and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Those words from Moses show that the intent was for the people to simply go forth in the strength of the Lord and to possess the land. However, instead of just agreeing to go forward, it is they, they, the Israelites, who proposed a delay, demonstrating a faithless fear rather than a faithful fortitude. As a pretext for simply wanting to have things clearly laid out as to how to enter the land, they asked for representatives to go forth first and to check out the land. Their words asked for, one, to search out the land, two, instructions on which way they should go up, and three, details about the cities. First, the Lord had already told them of the land, saying, You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. That was from Leviticus 20, verse 24. It was a good land, and it was given by promise to them. All they had to do was accept his words and go forward. Secondly, he said that he would go before them. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Exodus 23, verse 23. <laughs> there was no need to decide upon the best route. All they would need to do is follow the Lord as he determined. And thirdly, the state of the cities is irrelevant. 
whether they were open areas without defense or highly fortified cities with no seemingly possible way of being taken, the Lord has already said that they would not be able to defend against his hand. This is repeated several times in the book of Exodus. It is he who would drive them out. All they needed to do was go in and follow his lead. All of this brings about these first words of chapter 13, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, It is actually not the Lord who initiated this conversation, but rather it was Israel. And so, in agreement with their faithless request, he then says, verse 2, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. Despite there being absolutely no need for spies to be sent, the Lord agrees to their request, knowing the outcome and knowing what the request will lead to. The Lord cannot be blamed for what lies ahead, but he can use it to make patterns, parallels, and pictures of Jesus. And this is exactly what he will do. Israel's faithlessness is used as an opportunity for us to see in advance of Christ's coming things which would confirm who he is as the events which surround Israel will be repeated in events which surround him and his ministry. And so the Lord says that they are to do as requested and send out men to spy out the land of Canaan. Verse 2 going on, which I am giving to the children of Israel. The words are not a superfluous addition. Instead, they are an integral part of what is being relayed. It is an accomplished fact that the land is a gift to Israel. One can only give what he possesses. In saying that he is giving the land to the children of Israel, it means that the land is already his. If they want to delay this process, be it 40 days or 40 years, that is their choice. The Lord has already assured them of it, and Moses has, according to what is recorded in Deuteronomy, already told them to go forward and to possess it. If they want a detailed report, that is what they will get, and it will be from competent men. Verse 2 continues, from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man. Ishechad, Ishechad, Lamate Avotav. Man one, man one, for tribe of their fathers. The repetition is a way of specifying each tribe is to send one man per tribe. Verse 2 going on, everyone a leader among them. It is the same term, Nasi, a prince or a leader that was used of the men who were selected as leaders of each tribe way back in chapter 1. These will also be such men, but they will not be the same men. The Lord specifically calls for such men to ensure that what they report will be reliable and that it will have its intended effect, whatever they decided, upon the people. If they were to pick 12 Charlies at random upon their return, if they ever returned, if they ever found their way back to camp, their words would never be considered as acceptably representative of what they had searched out. Verse 3, so Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord. In agreeing to their suggestion, and by the mouth of the Lord, Moses sends the chosen men from the encampment. These were, verse 3 continues, all of them men who are heads of the children of Israel. Again, the men are given a descriptive title, Rashe, or heads of the children of Israel. The word Rosh signifies a head, and thus the top, or the first. They are men who are trustworthy One can almost sense, based on the disobedience already displayed by the people since leaving Sinai, that highlighting these men in this second way implies a sense of impending doom. The question which is already being raised is, which head are they going to listen to? Will it be their true head who has spoken out his assurances, or these lesser heads who are head men, but still just men? 
Verse 4, now these were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur. The following verses give the names of those who went and their father's name as an identification. Some of the names are debated, but you will hear the most likely meaning of each. Shamua means hearing or in the sense of being heard and thus renowned. Zakur means remembered or in the sense of remembering and thus mindful. Verse 5, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat the son of Hori. Shaphat means he has judged. Hori could have one of several meanings, it being derived from Hor, which is a cave or a hole, so maybe he's a guy with a hole in his head, or something white or burning. It's hard to say for sure. Verse 6, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephune. Kalev means dog. Jephune means he will be beheld or he will turn. Kalev will later be identified as a Kenizzite, a descendant of Canaan. Thus, it is likely that he is of foreign birth, but brought into the people of Israel and the tribe of Judah. Verse 7, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal the son of Joseph. Egal means he avenges or he redeems. Yosef means he will add. Verse 8, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea the son of Nun. Hosea means salvation. Nun comes from a word meaning to propagate or to increase. Verse 9, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. Palti means Jehovah has freed. Raphu means healed. Verse 10, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. Gadiel means God is my fortune. Sodi means my counselor. Verse 11, from the tribes of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. Gadi means my fortune, Susi means horsemen. Here it says that this person is from the tribe of Joseph. Ephraim, the other son of Joseph, has already been listed, and it did not say this. This is especially odd because Ephraim is usually listed specifically in this way. The reason appears to be looking forward. Hosea, Joshua, who is from Ephraim, will remain faithful to the Lord. But Gadi will reflect dishonor upon Joseph, who was considered a noble ancestor who faithfully held to the Lord. Verse 12, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. Amiel means my kinsman is God. Gamali means camel driver or possessor of camels. Verse 13, from the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael. Sether means hidden. Michael means who is like God. As a point of interest, the letters of the name Sether equal 666. It is almost a puzzle to consider because his name reads Sether, the son of Michael or hidden the son of who is like God. Very interesting. Something's going on there. Verse 14, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vossi. Nabi means concealed. Vossi means and my abundance and thus rich. Verse 15, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machi. Geuel means majesty of God. Machi means my poverty. Verse 16, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. Nobody from Levi is named here because they are set apart to the Lord and also because they were to receive no land inheritance. Also, like in the listing in Numbers 1, Joseph was divided into his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. However, three of the tribes in Numbers chapter 1 have their order changed in this listing here. Zebulun, Manasseh, and Gad all moved to a lower position in the ranking. Verse 16 continues, And Moses called Hosea the son of Nun, Joshua. Hosea, as we saw, means salvation. Joshua, or Yehoshua in Hebrew, 
means the Lord is salvation. When and why Moses first called him Joshua is unknown. The Hebrew can be read as indicating any time frame. It may be he was given the name when they battled the Amalekites way back in Exodus chapter 17. Or it could be that he gave him the name here, but the name Joshua was used in advance of the actual granting of the name, just as the name Peter is recorded as Peter earlier in the Gospels, even before Jesus gave him the name. The why of his name change is possibly, and I'm just speculating here, it's possibly because when he first came to Moses and Moses asked him his name, he might have said, I am Hosea, meaning I am salvation. Moses might have smiled at him and said, no, you are Joshua because the Lord is salvation. The reason for, you get the pun, everybody said that's probably what happened there. The reason for stating the name change here is probably because Joshua would have been listed as Hosea in the tribal records. However, with the changing of his name by Moses, it is now recorded officially as Joshua. In this, Joshua is to be seen as a type of Christ. In fact, the Greek name of Joshua is identical in spelling to the Greek name of Jesus or Yeshua in the New Testament. He thus anticipates Jesus in the name. The Lord is salvation. When Yeshua or Jesus came, he is the Lord who is salvation. Joshua will be the one who will have come from the land of promise with a zeal to bring his people to where he's been. This is then typical of Christ who came from heaven and fervently completed his work to bring his people to where he had been. Similarly, it is Joshua who will lead the people into their temporal salvation in Canaan. That occurs in the book of Joshua. It is Jesus who leads people in their spiritual salvation in a return to paradise. The acknowledgement of the name change here is to anticipate Joshua's faithful return from Canaan as the figure who is typical of Jesus Christ. Be of good courage. Be brave and resolute. Do not fear as you pass through the land. I mean to encourage so that you bear fruit. Know that the Lord is with you at your right hand. And so soon enough you will have the task completed. You shall be heading for home where I await. Don't let the length of time seem as if you will be defeated. Just set your eyes on the goal and keep your path straight. Be of good courage. Your work is a part of my plan. And what you do shall be used for that good end. I mean to encourage. Set yourself for the entire span and on this life's mission. You, I shall send. Our second thought today is be of good courage. It's verses 17 through 20. Verse 17, then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains. The word is singular here, ha-har, the mountain. It is a term meaning hill country. Moses directs them to go through the Negev or the south land of Israel first. This is the barren and wasted part of the land. It is dry and inhospitable, and it truly is the dregs of Canaan. My mom can tell you that. She's been there several times. I went with her one time. You drive through the Negev, and it's very, very inhospitable. Thus, in venturing through this area first, they would go from the least favorable to the more choice areas. That's comparable to the wedding feast noted in John chapter 2. The poorer wine was brought out first, and only afterward was the finest wine made available. The intent was that the memory of the inhospitable land would be forgotten on their return, and that which was of delight and worthy of exciting the people would be fresh on the lips of the spies. What you can see happening here is that Moses is giving the people every single opportunity to say, Woohoo! Let's go! Yeah. 
That's why he's doing it the way he's doing it. Verse 18, and see what the land is like. The people are now in the wilderness. They were sustained by manna, but they had very little variety in their lives. A detailed account of the land was to be an encouragement to them. There were mountains, rivers and streams, forests, an ocean with beaches on one side, fruit trees, open lands for herds, and on and on and on. The men were to do a thorough inspection of the land in order to whet the appetites of those who awaited word of what lay ahead. Moses then defines the meaning of this first clause with a list of specific instructions of what they were to be on the lookout for. Verse 18 continues, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many. The pulpit commentary chides Moses here for these words, saying he is guilty of some indiscretion for asking them to consider these points. But this is not so. The Lord has already said that he would go before the people. The report can only reflect on the faith of the people and the promise. It would take no faith to go into a land filled with a bunch of pusillanimous punks. Rather, the people are to be presented with a fair and proper evaluation of what lies ahead. Their faith in the Lord will be tested by their response to whatever is presented to them. In this clause is a new word, rafe. It is an adjective meaning weak. Verse 19, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. The Lord had already told them that it is a land filled with milk and honey. The people have tested the Lord by asking for an inspection. Moses is asking the spies to confirm his word. When it is confirmed, and it will be, it is intended to have at least two effects on them. One, they should be ashamed of their doubting his promises and his intents for them. And two, they should be more willing to trust his other promises as are equally true. In the future, there should logically be no further reason to doubt his word. These things are unknown to the people, but they are known to the Lord. Is experiential knowledge necessary for belief, or is the Lord to be taken at his word? That is a lesson for us today as much as it is for Israel as they stood ready to enter the land of Canaan. I'm going to say that again so you understand what I'm talking about. Is experiential knowledge necessary for belief? Do you have to see in order to believe the Lord? Or do you just hear his word and accept it and say, I accept that premise? This is what they're being offered and they turned it down and they want experiential knowledge. We're not given that. People ask for signs and visions and we're not given that. We are given the word of the Lord, and we are to trust that word of the Lord. Moses then says, verse 19 continues, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. If the people lived in camps, they would be open prey to the forces of Israel. But if they were in strongholds, they would be defended, and they would be able to slowly reduce the numbers who came against them. The word for strongholds here, mibsar, is a new word. It indicates a fortification coming from a root meaning enclosed or inaccessible. The Lord already knows what the land is like, but the people do not. They wanted a report. The Lord is providing that report. What they do with it is up to them. Will they trust him regardless of the description or will they grow faint-hearted at the mention of any difficulty? They wanted to know about Canaan, but the Lord wants them to know their own hearts. Verse 20, whether the land is rich or poor. And what the land, the fat is or lean. Fat in this sense is that which is rich and luxurious, even to abundance. This is the opposite of raze or lean. It is a new word seen only here and in Ezekiel 34 verse 20. 
the idea here is if there are cows, are they chubby or are they scrawny like Charlie? If there are trees, are they mighty or are they twig-like? If there is fruit in season, how is it? Are they large and juicy and nummy? Or are they poor, desiccated and sour? Again, the Lord has promised what it will be like. Will his words be confirmed? If so, the people should be ashamed. If not, then they have been misled. But such will never be the case. The placement of their faith is what is under evaluation. Verse 20 continues, and whether there are forests there or not. The words say, and whether there is wood in it or not. It isn't until Deuteronomy that the Ya'ar, or forest, is first mentioned. For now, regardless of there being numerous trees or wooded forests, Moses is asking for a description of whatever is available. As forests will be a part of the report, as we can tell from Deuteronomy, it would, again, be a great encouragement to the people who have been living in an environment with extremely limited supply of wood. And that means both in Egypt and now in the wilderness. Verse 20 continues, be of good courage. Vehit chazak tem. The single Hebrew word basically says, and you all be of good courage. It is plural. One can see Moses, after having pointed to the south land and then having given these instructions, now looking at all of them collectively, and then each individually, and saying, don't fear, you guys. Be strong and be encouraged. Moses is perfectly at peace with their mission, and he is desirous that they be just as much so as he is. And to assure them that their way will lead them back to the camp, and in fact, they will make it back to the camp, he says, verse 20 continues, and bring some of the fruit of the land. To ask them to bring home fruit has several important aspects to it. First, it is something that they would do towards the end of their travels, signifying that they would, in fact, get to that point. Secondly, it would show the people what they were missing out on by staying in the wilderness any longer. And thirdly, it would be a pledge and a confirmation of the good things promised to them. Verse 20 going on, now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This places the account around July or August, unless it is speaking of the time of the return with the grapes. Then they would have left 40 days earlier, making their departures May, July sometime. The traditional Jewish date that they teach is that they returned on the eighth day of the month of Av, and the people heard their report and moaned against the Lord on the ninth day of Av, setting a date in Jewish history which is especially marked with bad tidings, including the destruction of both temples in Jerusalem. Both were destroyed on that same date, and they've had all kinds of calamity throughout their history on the ninth of Av. If this is correct, it is the July-August time frame, and thus they would have left 40 days earlier than this clause of verse 20. What is the land like? We can't wait to see. Is it truly flowing with milk and honey? What does the future hold? We are waiting expectantly. We anticipate a land where the skies will be sunny. Well, they should have gone to Florida then. <laughs> when will be the day when we finally set out and head for the land we have been waiting to see? We anticipate good news. We are hopeful, no doubt. Yes, we are in anticipation and waiting expectantly. The news will be brought back and we hope it is good. We anticipate a good report. It will be. Surely that will be the case. This is understood. And so we wait for the news ever so expectantly. Our third thought today is the Valley of Eshkol. It's verses 21 through 25. Verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamat. Zin 
if from a biblical word gives the sense of a thorn or a barb. It is not the same as the wilderness of Sin, which was closer to Egypt. This is right on the border of Israel. From there, they traveled essentially following the course of the Jordan River north to Rechov, which means open place. It is right at the northern extremity of the land where Dan is today. It is on the road which leads to Libo Hamat, or the entrance to Hamat. Hamat means defense or citadel. Verse 22, and they went up through the south and came to Hebron. The Hebrew here goes from the third person plural to the third person singular. And they went up through the Negev and he came to Hebron. Hebron means association or league. What this means is that the spies all went up through the Negev and one branched off and went to Hebron while the others searched out other towns. In this, they would be able to cover much more land dividing among the cities within geographical areas. This then would be speaking of Caleb. In Joshua 14, we read this. I was four years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Caleb was the one who searched out this area. It stirred his heart, and he was granted the right to it by Moses. This is common in the Bible, where a matter is stated concerning its end, and then only later are the details filled in. Such was the case where Genesis 1 completed the creation and where Genesis 2 then filled in details. From there, it occurs again and again and again in Scripture. Verse 22 continues, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Ahiman means my brother is a gift. Sheshai means whitish. Talmai means plowman. Anak means long neck or necklace. They are a tribe known for their appearance. This is sure because the Hebrew says ha-anak, the anak. It is not speaking of an individual, but of a group of people. These people, the anakim, thus became known as the long necks, or for their distinctive neck ornamentation that they wore, and thus they might be called the necklace folk. The latter is more probable because it means they were like the Egyptians who were known for their unusual neck ornamentations. And that would help explain the unusual clause which is next stated. Verse 22 continues, Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. This is a parenthetical thought without any seeming relevance to the narrative. However, it appears that Moses may be confronting the belief of the Egyptians that they were the most ancient of all civilizations. In fact, then, Hebron is of greater antiquity than Zoan, which is now known as Tanis in Egypt. Zoan means lowland, but to a Hebrew it would sound like nomadic. This would then indicate that the Anakara people group related to the Egyptians and shared in the same ostentatious display of neck ornamentation. Verse 23, then they came to the valley of Eshkol. This is not a valley as one would think of it today. The word is Nahal, and it signifies a wadi, where water would flow through during the seasons of rain. That word comes from Nahal, meaning to take possession or to inherit. Eshkol means cluster. But that comes from the word eshek, meaning surprisingly a testicle. Again, the details are given and then the blanks are filled in. The valley is named for the cluster which was cut. 
This is actually explained in the next verse, verse 24. For now, verse 23 continues. And there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. Here's another new word, zemorah. It is a branch which is pruned. It is a single branch of anavim or grapes. In the Bible, grapes are used to provide a sense of cultural expression. Verse 23 continues, they carried it between two of them on a pole. After cutting the cluster, they placed it on a pole. The same word is used to describe the pole on which the menorah and the golden altar of incense were carried. It is a shaking pole, meaning one which would be carried between two people, thus moving with their body movements. The Hebrew says that it was carried beshnaim, or between two of them, but it doesn't say which two. However, it can also mean in twos. That means they could have taken turns. Verse 23 continues, they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The rimon, or pomegranate, is associated with the word rum, or to be high, or exalted. It carries the connotation of mental maturity and calling to remembrance. The te'ena, or fig, has not been seen in the Bible since Genesis chapter 3. It is the third tree mentioned in the Bible, and its significance is one of a connection to God or a disconnect from Him. Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves as a type of work, demonstrating a disconnect from God. The fig tree that Jesus cursed had no fruit, only leaves. That was a walking parable of the temple which no longer held a connection to God and which was destined to be cursed, never to bear fruit again. People will say, you'll hear this many times in commentaries, that the fig represents Israel. That is incorrect. When used in connection with Israel, it represents its connection to God. Is it spiritually healthy or is it not? Verse 24, the place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. This verse provides the details of that which has already been stated. The place they came to is named the Valley of Cluster. However, the name may also be a confirmation of Abraham's friend Eshkol, same name, who lived in this same area many, many centuries earlier. Verse 25, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. The number 40 is defined as a period of probation, trial, and chastisement, but not of judgment. It is a time of testing to determine an outcome. It is the product of five and eight and points to the action of grace, which is the number five, leading to and ending in revival, which is the number eight. The 40 days are ended and the spies have returned. What will be the outcome? At this point, the answer remains unstated, and it won't be until we complete the verses next week where the answer will hopefully be given. For now, and as we finish up, we should remember what precipitated this journey into Canaan by the spies. It wasn't something directed by the Lord, but something requested by the people. In this, it truly is a lack of faith in his word that brought this about. It is the only reasonable explanation. He had told them that they would possess the land. He had told them that he would go before them and ensure that it would be accomplished. And yet they wanted to follow this course of action, looking for a sign that things would be favorable. If we can walk away with one main thought from this, it should be of the parallel in our own lives. The Lord has spoken. His word is written, and he asks us to accept it by faith. How difficult that is when things aren't going well. With the unknown just over the next set of hills, or with the prospect of facing a battle that we have only been told will come out okay. He has said that death is defeated. It says right there in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory, but the cancer is eating away at us. He has said that paradise awaits, but guess what? So does the grave. 
He has said that the devil is defeated for those who are his, and yet we act at times as if the devil has possession of our very souls. Will we be like faithless Israel and ask for more? Or will we stand content that what the Lord has promised, he will, in fact, bring about? Let us trust the Lord, put our confidence in him, and know with every fiber of our being that he has it all under control. But that is only true if you are his. Only after that, then comes the path to full and complete trust. Be sure to know your destiny now, because once that is settled, you can then steadily work on a developing faith that nothing can shatter. And so as I do each week, I'd like to explain to you very quickly how to receive Jesus Christ. This book, I'm telling you what, now I know the answer to what this is picturing because I did the second sermon, all right? I was kind of keeping you on the limb. Did I figure it out or not? It took a lot. Of, I would lay in bed every night for those two weeks without sleeping and thinking, Lord, what do you, it was a complicated passage, just like Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement was. It was very complicated because he's given you words and those words have intent. And if you notice, they went through all of Israel and they only had four, four verses that said anything about their trip in Israel, specific names, and then a, one of those verses was parenthetical, speaking about something in Egypt. You have to wonder what the Lord is telling you when he does that because he is telling you something. And what he is telling you in a broad picture right now is that every single thing in this book that we are looking at, as you have seen for the past countless sermons, everything points to Jesus Christ. God is trying to wake us up to him, to his plan of redemptive history, and how he is going to fix the mess that we started at, all right, way back in the beginning. He's going to fix it. It's all about Jesus. And so when we get to the part that says, Jesus died on a cross for your sins, and Jesus went into a grave, and he was there until the third day, and then he was raised by the power of God, which is seemingly incredible, who would think that one of us would die and come back three days later? Impossible. God is asking us to have faith. That is what brings about your salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. There's nothing you can do to please God because your sins have separated from your God so that he will not hear, says the book of Isaiah. It doesn't matter how much money Bill Gates has given for AIDS research. He is no closer to God than he was the day he was born. You must come through Jesus Christ, and that is an act of of faith. If you exercise faith, I read a commentary from somebody on Facebook this morning while I was waiting for you all to show up. And once again, the Calvinist interpretation of things that you cannot choose God, that he has to regenerate you first by the Holy Spirit. That is as far from biblical Christianity as it can come. We see the light, we respond to the light, or we reject it. God doesn't force us to be saved. He asks us to receive what he has done. That don't believe that bad doctrine. You must do something, and that is call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. Please do that today. This is my appeal to you. And then after you've been saved, as Jim so beautifully said today, appreciate it and show the appreciation for it. He had a debt forgiven by somebody in his family for a house payment, and he was very appreciative. We have a debt of eternal significance forgiven. It will last forever and forever and forever. And we act as if it doesn't matter. We forget to tell people about the same gift that we've been given. We neglect the tracks on the wall. Just stick it on. You're going out to dinner three times a week. Take three tracks, right? And it doesn't matter what happens to those tracks. Lovely Mabel here told me this morning that she puts them in the bathroom at the place where they live. 
And somebody, she found one in the, the uh, garbage. Somebody had taken it, just thrown it away. Who cares? Somebody else might pick it up and read it and say, I need to know Jesus. But show appreciation for what he has done for you. This is what's important. Next week is Numbers 13, 26 through 33. What will happen? I had no idea at the time of typing this sermon. It is true. It's entitled, A Taste of the Land of Promise. Part 2. That'll be our 24th number sermon. Thank you, Jay. Okay, I've got something to ask you here. During this sermon, I said the Bible often speaks of the end of a matter as an accomplished fact. It then provides an account filling in the details. Everybody got that? That's happened three times in this sermon alone. It happens all through the Bible. Where is the accomplished fact that Christ would come to restore things first recorded in the Bible? It's in Genesis. I mean, it's right after the fall. Yes, Genesis 3, somebody said. It's verse 15. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. Let me read it to you. Here's what it is. Genesis 3, verse 15. Somebody gets a Maserati for answering that. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It's proclaiming a coming Messiah. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is the proto-evangelium, promising that somebody would come to undo what we have fouled up. And guess what? That proclamation, every single word of Scripture after that point, every word is filling in the details. It is showing us the plan of redemption. In 1,502 billion different ways, it is showing us that in types, in pictures, and it gets to the very last page of the Bible, and it tells you of the glory that is coming because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Everything points to that if you are willing to accept that promise. And if not, hey man, you've been told the gospel. You know that Christ died for you. There is only one place that God will send you. And it's not because he's actively sending you. It's he's allowing you to send yourself by the rejection of his son. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem and we'll be done. It's entitled, A Taste of the Land of Promise. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these are the words he was then relaying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them, as to you I now tell. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel, according to his word. Now these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for sure, from the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, yes, Sodi's son. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sether, the son of Michael, as we now see. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vofsi. From the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Maki. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. When Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua, as we now perfectly understand. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the south this way and go up to the mountains and see what the land is 
like as to you, I now say. Whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, you should find out too. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, as I am now telling you. Whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land back to us here at this spot. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamat. So we now understand. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Of such interesting information, the Bible does not spare. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, so they did do. They carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs, too. The place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land. After 40 days, so ended this particular affair. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story. Even though it's a little confusing what's going on there, we can tell right from the page itself that we're being asked to demonstrate faith. Unlike faithless Israel, you're asking us to listen to your word, to evaluate it and say, yes, I accept that premise. I accept the premise that this is the word of God. It has the power of the word of God, and therefore it can save. And then from that, we make the choice. We call on Jesus. We believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, and we are saved. Lord, it's that simple. I pray that if anybody is here today or anybody that's listening online now or at any future point has come to the realization that they need Jesus, I would pray that they would not do anything else until they first received him. This is my prayer today for them. And Lord, I thank you for this congregation and the wonderful people that attend here and those online. What a blessing it is to know and fellowship with such wonderful people. Lord God, we love you. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to be honest as the guy that I am. And it's hard to admit your faults and your shortcomings and, and, uh, some time ago, we've had a couple really crummy people come into this church where they've been belligerent, and we've had to chase them out. And as I like to say, because my mom is such a spunky person, one of them, she actually chased out the door, and she chased him down the road, and that guy's still running today. Okay. <laughs> Having said that, we've, we have a guy that, Tom, he's a guy I've known for years, and he came in one week, and he was drunk, and he was asking people for money and kind of just acting like a, a, an idiot. And the next week, he came in again. And without giving him a chance, I just said, Tom, I don't want you in this church. You need to go. And he left. And I have felt bad about that for over a year and a half now. I lay in bed at night, literally talking to the Lord about, I'm so sorry, Lord. I haven't seen Tom in over a year and a half, not one time. I didn't know if he was drunk that day or not. Maybe he was coming in to get himself clean this time instead of bothering people. And I needed to give him the chance first. And I did not. 
And this morning, I went to the mall, as I always do, and I don't work there on Sundays, but I stop and I take out the, the meat from Anna's and the uh, bread from the dumpster, and I feed it to the birds and the uh, coons out there. They wait for me every morning. And uh, so I was out there doing that. And then I drove around the mall, and I saw somebody humped over a table sitting there. And I kept going. I got up to the exit for the thing, and I thought, I wonder if that's Tom. Just the way he was humped over. I backed up, and I parked it, and I got out, and Tom saw me, and he thought, oh, God, here comes Charlie. He's going to chase me off this property. <laughs> and I walked up, and I said, how are you, Tom? He said, I'm okay. I said, Tom, I have something to tell you. And he said, what? I said, I'm so sorry that I kicked you out of that church without knowing your situation. I had no idea what your situation was that day. And he said, it's okay. And we talked for a while. And he said, are you still meeting over there? I said, yeah, and you're welcome. I said, just don't come drunk and don't come belligerent. And you're welcome in that church. But I drove all the way from that, that mall all the way over here, stopping at Publix. And the whole time I was talking to the Lord, thanking him so much for giving me the opportunity to apologize to another human being that maybe was there to hear the gospel instead of to bum off of people. Now, he's been a problem in my side for many years. He's been at that mall, and, and it has not been easy. And I know the guy, but I assume something I should not have. And so I want you to know that that is something that has broken my heart for years now because I didn't know the moment. And you must rely on the moment. You can't rely on the past. So thank God for what happened today with Tom. And if he comes in here, give him a big welcome.